one, I'll read a couple of verses here and then then we'll pray. We'll, we'll start with uh, verse 21. And the, the teaching is titled Israel's Mighty One. But but I really want to work on transformation. That's kind of like a, a sub theme here. But Isaiah chapter one, beginning with verse 21. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silvers become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause or doeth the cause of the widow. Neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. Therefore saith the Lord, the the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. That little phrase is what we're using as the title, just because of how powerful God is. Ah, I will ease me of my adversaries and avenge me of my enemies. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we take the time to look into your word tonight, we pray for every man, woman in here. And Lord, we're grateful that we can open up the scriptures and allow them to minister to our hearts. Now, Lord, where you find pain or infirmity in any of your folks here tonight, we pray that you'd stretch forth your hand and heal. The scripture is so true when it says you're the mighty one of Israel, and we know that you gave your son to bear our infirmities. Where we have loved ones that are not born again, I pray, God, that even as we teach, that our intercession would go up as incense in your presence and Lord work behind the scenes to bring people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray for in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Israel's mighty one. And then looking at this whole issue of transformation, a harmful transformation. But then in the end, God begins to turn it in the direction it needs to go. We explained to you that Isaiah lived in the 8th century before Jesus was born. And you can see from verse 1 of chapter 1 that he prophesied during the reigns of several kings. So he had a very long ministry, at least five decades long. Likely longer, but at least five decades. It's called a vision because these are things that he saw. And this is why in chapter six, it talks about him seeing those cherubim that were around the throne and those creatures crying, holy, holy, holy. He saw some things with his spiritual eyes. And by the leading of the Holy Spirit, he then began to sit down and write some of these things. Now, oftentimes when we read the Old Testament prophets, we we tend to incline to the position that these things are so harsh And what he is saying is so difficult and it's so negative, but I don't want you to see it that way. You should really see these prophets as manifestations of the mercies of God, that God doesn't want to give up on them. And he continues to send one man, one woman after another to point a finger and say, repent and come back. Now, we may have been irritated in times past when people witnessed to us about the king. And you may not have always wanted to do Bible study when your mom and pops wanted you to sit down and do it. 
But rather than looking at that as a form of legalism, you ought to think of it as the grace and compassion of God because the truth was being introduced to you to form and shape your conscience. And when God uses Isaiah and Jeremiah and Samuel and others, it is specifically to call a nation to truth and to righteousness. According to chapter one, somewhere they got off the beaten path of righteousness. So you can see in verses nine and 10, it got so bad that the Lord spoke to them as though they were Sodom and Gomorrah. So you can imagine the kinds of sins in manifestation there. And the Lord even dealt with them about all of the sacrifices. And we taught you a Bible study entitled, Why All the Sacrifices? What's the point of them all if we're not going to obey the king? Well, now then, we come to this, this point where the Lord has basically said, come, let's get together. Let's reason about the word of God. Whatever your sins are, I'll wash them. I'll clean you. And you can see in verse 21, Mr. Isaiah is back to these descriptions again. Now, he calls Israel at one time a faithful city. By Israel, I mean Jerusalem, because his prophecies concern the region of Judah and specifically the city of Jerusalem. It was a faithful city because it was called to be the holy place of God. And at one time or another, it did have faithful people in. It did exhibit faithfulness. And that's the same with any of us. But over time, if you don't stay close to the word of God, you'll change. And that's where the transformation comes. Sometimes people change. And by the time they realized that they've changed, changed course and changed their behavior, they're so far away from the signal of God that they can't hear from God. God doesn't talk to them through the word of God. They can't receive from God. And you don't want that kind of transformation in your life. If you've got a dish on the side of your house, you know, in order to set that thing up, you've got to have that green bar go over so far. And, and, and when they when they first set it up, they want that green bar to come at least up into the 90 percentile. And so then you have a, a signal with a clear picture. But if you get a snowstorm and ice gets on that thing and it blocks the the, uh, the signal that's coming in or if somebody's playing outside and they bump it and it knocks it off just a centimeter or so. Your strong signal will be lost. So what happens if a person is walking with God and then all of a sudden they change their trajectory and they decide they want to alter their course and stop following what God has told them? Then conduct changes. And, and when it does change, the transformation is never from the good to the better, it's always from the good to the bad. And you can see in verse 21, it says, how has the faithful city become a harlot? So become tells you that, that there's been a change. And we need to understand that, that a harlot is different than just someone who's a fornicator. Now, you can't be a, a harlot without being a fornicator. But the difference is a harlot is someone who's usually given themselves in exchange for something. Judah's daughter-in-law played the harlot. Rahab was a harlot doing things for money. A lot of people can be involved with physical relations with other people outside of the covenant of marriage and never look for any money to change hands. You see, but somehow or another, the city has become a harlot in that they have sold themselves 
to do idolatrous things, giving themselves over to it. And a city that once was full of judgment, that is to say, that had wisdom, discernment, all of that now has been lost. So God established the church to be a vessel fit for the master's use. He established the church to be a vessel that has discerning of spirits, the ability to recognize what's holy and what's profane. He established the church to be a people of judgment. And this is why the scripture says judgment must begin at the household of God or at the house of God. But when we lose our sense of rationale and we end up in Romans chapter one with a reprobate mind, then we can't we can't make good judgment calls anymore. And once you lose your sense of judgment, you don't know what's wrong. You don't know what's right. And if you do, you don't care. Now, good illustration of that is if you've ever sat at the dinner table with someone and you began to talk about scriptures and then here's someone who may or may not be educated, but certainly able to advocate their own opinion. And they'll tell you why it's so important for us as stewards of the earth to be good caretakers. And, and they'll go, you know, they'll, they'll wax eloquent and tell you about how we need to make sure we take care of the spotted owl and, and, and the striped gnat. And, and we got to look after the dogs and all of that. And, and they get really passionate about that. But then if the, if the conversation turns towards something like, like, uh, babies in a mother's womb, then they, they advocate for abortion then you wonder how in the world can you think you can find scriptures in the Bible that says you should protect the cat, but yet you can't find one verse in the Bible that says you ought to preserve a baby. See, when we lose our sense of judgment, we become an unfaithful city. And this is why it says it was full, past tense, of judgment, but righteousness lodged in it in the past, But now, see that conjunction, but tells us there's been a transformation. The same people who at one time made righteous judgments and were involved with righteousness have now become murderers. Now, either that generation died or that generation moved to another location or this same generation was transformed. Now, you think about that. In, in our own nation, in our own county, in these cities right here in the heartland, people who once believed certain things change their values, change their values. And, and it's, it's, it's really quite shocking when, when that happens. I do recall one time Tiffany and I were visiting with some people and uh, we'd gone to their house and we're sitting outside at a table having lunch and I've got couple of older couples sitting here with me and then one lady who wasn't married. And so we're talking about the covenant of marriage and all of this. And this one lady said, well, I don't even see any reason why, you know, two older people uh, would need to get married. I mean, after all, why mess up their Social Security? I mean, they can just get together, just live together and just blend the money. And this this was a woman in her 70s telling me this. And I'm thinking, okay, now in your generation as a kid, you wouldn't have even had people live together outside of wedlock in the little small town. But now here you are in your 70s and your mind has so changed that you don't see anything wrong with living together and enjoying all the benefits of marriage without the covenant of marriage. Again, 
the city was full of judgment and righteousness. But now things have changed. Yeah. So verse 22, he says, the silver that you have has become dross. That is to say, its luster is now affected. Now he's using these as analogies, or I should say metaphors, to describe the people. When he says the wine is not mixed with water, wine is supposed to have some potency to it if you're going to become inebriated. But the more water you mix with it, the less potent it is and effective on you in changing how you're going to conduct yourself. And this is what he said. All of this is coming and there's a, there's a modification that has occurred. You people are not the people you once were, not the people that I established. And it hasn't been for the good. The princes, these are the rulers, people of influence and power, they're rebellious. Now, why does he call them rebellious? Because they're rebellious against him, the king. The spiritual king. That's why they're rebellious. Not the natural king, because the natural king could very well be wicked himself. But they're rebellious against God. This tells me that you may be in step with your political party. You may be in step with your king. You may be in step with whoever is governing a society. But if you're out of step with what God says, you're rebellious. You're rebellious. That's important. Yeah. Companions of thieves, you're running with the wrong people. Now, all of us know, especially the older ones know, that your parents were quite clear about wanting to know who you're running with and who your friends are. In fact, my mom and pops would say, bring some of your friends here so that we can see who they are. Then, of course, when I brought some of them there, they said, please don't bring them again. Right. And my mom and dad definitely had a policy that no one comes in this house if we're not here. They, they, they wouldn't go for that at all. My mom kept everything, all the furniture in our living room was in plastic. And and we couldn't even go in there and play. I mean, she she had a little little throw or something, a runner that ran across the floor from the kitchen through the living room, right through the bedrooms and into the uh, into the bathroom. And, and once she went in there and did all of her vacuuming and stuff, if she came home and found my footprints in there, wasn't pretty at all. So I got smart and I, I learned how to vacuum. <laughs> yeah, I, I made sure I learned how to vacuum so it didn't matter. But I never paid attention to the fact that she put certain patterns in there. So I still oftentimes got into some trouble. So companions of thieves. What kind of people do you enjoy being around? If you're a strong Christian, you should want to be around strong Christians. If you're going to be around weaker Christians, then you should be around them in order for you to influence them. Not so that they pull you down. Yeah. Be the kind of person that's going to be effective in changing, changing their life. He says in verse 23, these folks are even loving gifts. Gifts change people. You know, there's a verse in, in the Bible that says money is the answer to all things. And there are plenty of people that believe that. If you, you, if you give money to some people, they'll do whatever you want them to do. They'll preach whatever you want them to preach. They'll do whatever you want them to do at work. And of course, this goes back to verse uh, 21 where it talks about becoming a harlot. You exchange funds for particular activities. Everyone loves gifts. 
Well, God doesn't want us to be that way because if you're chasing behind rewards like that, then you certainly are going to walk away from your values and compromise all of those things. And I'm telling you now, when that happens and the boat starts going down, everything else is affected, too. So kids without moms and dads that are fatherless, they get caught up in all of this. Those that uh, have lost a spouse and are widows, they're neglected. In ancient times, there was no welfare. There was no WIC. There was no Social Security. Nobody could go down to the county and get on any kind of program that was going to help them at all. The best they could do is that in the, the, uh, the nation of Israel, there were groups, particularly leaders, that would go out of their way to help those people in their tribes. And you could appeal to the leadership in your tribe to help you. And if you were a kid that didn't have any family, then, of course, people are going to look out for you. But it's not like that today. We throw people in foster care. Our foster care system is horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Now, there are exceptions in the sense that there are people who come out of the foster care system and haven't lost all their hair and they're still sane. And I pastored people that have come through the foster care system. But also, I know the horror stories. And I've met the people that have gone from one house to the next house to the next house. And from four to 18, they've been in 22 different homes. And all of those homes are different. And the parents are crazy. The kids in the house sometimes are crazy. And God definitely does not want our families in a church to be like that. And I don't think he wants society to be like that. But it's like that because of sin. And when you have people that are in it for the money and chasing after rewards, you can see what happens in the court system. Yeah, terrible things happen in that court system. So verse verse 24, here's what God says. This mighty one of Israel, who even though he's mentioned all these things in the preceding verses, however bad it has been, he's made it very plain that he's still in charge. He's still in control. And he said, I'll ease me of my adversaries. He said, I'm going to lessen the effect of all these wicked folks. That's how bad that's how bad God is. He's, he's strong enough to avenge himself of his enemies, because for anyone to do the things that are mentioned in these other verses, that is to be an enemy against God. When Paul was arresting Christians, you'll remember Jesus appeared to him in a vision and Jesus said, if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. Sinners don't think they're fighting against God. And when they are fighting against God, They've got to deal with God on his terms. The scripture is clear for us. Vengeance belongs to the king. Yeah, belongs to the king. We don't ever have to have to be involved with that. Now, I think in the past, I may have told you a few stories of Hubert Lindsay, a redheaded prophet that passed away maybe 20 years ago. Hubert Lindsay, they used to call him Holy Hubert. He was one of America's best campus preachers college campuses, and uh, he's often called the father of the Jesus movement from the 60s and 70s. Well, this, this man had a whole lot of what we call miracles of judgment in his ministry, not miracles of mercy, like healings and that kind of a thing, but, but miracles of judgment where people ended up 
you know, dropping dead, just difficult things. Well, he, he had gone to Denor, Pennsylvania one time. And while he was there, he was in a, uh, i trying to remember. He was out preaching in an area where they had a, 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 like a marketplace. And as he was out there ministering the word of God, the people were telling him to stop. They called the authorities. He kept preaching. Well, they arrested him for being a public nuisance. They put him in jail in that little town. And in that town where the jail was, it had a second and a third floor. And after he had been arrested, the arresting officer had the little billy club and was beating him and telling him that he should, you know, obey and submit and not be telling folks about Jesus because he was still preaching to them as they were arresting him. They put him up on the top and they put him in a cell where a window was overlooking the town square. So from the window, he had a whole congregation of sinners now. People out there shopping. He put his mouth right up against those bars and preached the gospel and told them to come to Christ and to repent of their sins. And of course, when they finally heard about that, they came in there and laid hands on him again and beat him. Well, he ends up going to the uh, court for his arraignment and everything. And he ends up in jail sentence for I don't know how many days. I can't remember right now, but I know the judge was not good to him. The lawyer wasn't good to him. They all treated him bad, spoke to him in a terrible way. Well, he, he told them that if, if, if you treat me this way or since you've treated me this way, you need to know the judgment of God's going to be upon you and upon this town because of what you've done. Well, they didn't care. They put him in jail anyhow. Well, when he finally did his time and, and got out that morning, he said, the Lord spoke to him and told him to leave. Get in that car of his and drive up far away. Well, that's what he did. I forget how far he drove and what town he ended up staying in. But a couple of days later in that newspaper, it showed how there was a like a fog that came into that little town in Pennsylvania. And just kind of settled over that town for the whole morning. And when that fog finally lifted, the arresting officer was dead. Okay. The, the, uh, the, the jailer who had beat him was dead. And the judge was dead. Some 17 other people in that little town ended up dead also. So this is why I say as a Christian, you don't need to try to defend yourself. God's big enough to do things. He's strong enough. He's able. If you don't believe me that it's in the New Testament, look at the story of what happened to uh, Herod when he put his hands on God's child and the angel of the Lord came and smote him. Yeah, I didn't I didn't write that. That's that, that's all in there. Look at what happened with the, the sorcerer or the witch that tried to stop Paul from preaching the gospel on Cyprus. What did Paul say? Paul said the hand of God be upon you. You'll be blind for a season. Man lost his sight. So on one of these trips to East Africa, there was this superintendent over one of these denominations that banned all evangelism. Can you even imagine it? He banned it, said no evangelism, no revivals. So the guy that I preach with very often, whenever I'd go, we'd preach revivals anyhow. Well, he knew he was getting in trouble. But I'd go preach these meetings with them. We were still doing outdoor uh, meetings and preaching for pastors and different things. And this superintendent was so angry that everyone who was a friend 
of Bishop Karani, this guy was taking their positions from them, demoting them because he was trying to undermine Karani and trying to keep me from helping Karani in preaching the gospel. Well, this went on for years, probably 10 years or so. And one day, as we were driving to the airport so they could take me back, Karani had another gentleman in the car, and they were all explaining to me the travails that they've been facing with that current leader of their denomination. And so I just said something like this. I just said, you know, with that kind of stuff going on, it wouldn't surprise me one day if he just went, he just laid down and didn't get up. That's all I said. You can't you can't try to fight against God's people and then not run into God when you're trying to do stuff that's, that's hindering evangelism. I think maybe three or four months later when I was talking with him, he said something about the leadership. And I said, well, what kind of change are you guys going through? He said, oh, I hadn't hadn't told you. He said the the oldest member of our denomination was over 100 years of age. And he said he died. So he said they went and picked him up. He had been dead for hours. And by the time they picked him up, they had him in that hearse or whatever ambulance, wherever they were carrying him in and said, he's dead. Everybody knows he's dead. But as he's laying in that hearse, his eyes open and he sits up. And he says, I've just had a vision and been to heaven and seen Jesus, and the Lord has spoken to me. He said, gather all of the bishops of our movement in one location. I have a message for them. And that's, that's what they did. They got all of them together. I think it was more than 200 or so. Had them all in one location with Bishop Karani. And, and when he got them there, he said, the first thing God told me was there's a town in such and such place. Go put a church there. He asked, is Bishop Karani there? Karani said, here I am. So Karani, he did. Later on, he went and put a church in that place. The next thing he said to him, he said, my message is for the superintendent. He said, to tell you that when I die, you're going to come into eternity with me also. Well, the superintendent was doing everything he could to keep himself from looking like he was elderly. And he had just recently appointed himself General superintendent for life. He had already been in charge for more than 40 years. He basically was a dictator controlling all the money, controlling the assembly's bank and all of that stuff. And sometime later, I say about a few weeks, he started having pains in his body, wanted to go to the hospital in America, hospital in Europe, couldn't go. And then that hundred and something year old man, he died. And within a few hours, superintendent died too. Dad too. So so what I'm saying to you is that our God is big enough to look after you and look after me. See? You you don't have to be out here putting the dukes up saying I'm gonna take care of, of a bad employer or somebody that's mistreating you. You don't have to do that at all. All we need to do is like Joseph did, close our mouths, walk with God. God may allow us to go through some things we don't want to go through. But when it's all over, he will avenge himself of his adversaries. Yeah. So look at verse 25. Here's what he says he's going to do. I'll turn my hand upon you and purely purge away that thy dross. He's saying, I'm going to shine you up. You're going to look good. I'm going to take away all thy tin. 
See, tin is something that can look like silver with dross on it, but you want something shiny and beautiful. He said, I'm going to restore your judges as at the first. When Jerusalem was first built, you had judges that were righteous, judges, people like Deborah. Yeah, Yeah, people like that. Gideon and thy counselors as at the beginning, people with wisdom and a spirit of understanding. Afterward, you'll be called the city of what? Righteousness, the faithful city. So now the now the Lord is saying, I see what you are right now, but I also see transformation coming if I get involved. And that's what God has done with with each and every one of us. Before we became Christians, we were sinners. But once God got involved by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit and worked to sanctify us through the Holy Ghost and every day setting us apart from sin unto righteousness, from bad choices to good choices. He is changing us every day. And this is why we can call ourselves faithful now. Remember, you're not a saint and I'm not a saint because we've done enough good deeds. And we're not saints because somebody sat down and voted on us becoming a saint. We're saints because we identify with Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. And when you look at Galatians 1, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 1, and so on and so forth, when it says to the saints which are in Ephesus or wherever, it is not talking about saints who now have been promoted because they did so many miracles from heaven and all the saints down here voted and said, we believe they're saints. That is idolatrous. It's talking about people who's been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And a saint is not a perfect person. A saint is a person connected to someone who is perfect. And that's Jesus. So our identity then is connected with what God has accomplished on our behalf. And this is why we speak of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But having said that, I don't want to leave you with the impression that Jesus is at the right hand of the father and he's no longer doing anything. He still does things. You say, well, what is he doing now? He ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. Yeah, he does ever lives to make intercession. You remember when Stephen was stoned and he looked up and when he looked up into the heavens, it says he saw Jesus standing. Standing. It's almost like it's a pass in review, like we used to call it in the military. You get all the guys out there standing in formation. Then here comes a general passing by or some particular person of of importance. And, And when the Lord stood up, it was to let Stephen know I'm here to welcome you. And that's why Stephen could say with the grace of God at work in his life as he's being stoned. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Yeah. So Jesus is still busy. And if you don't think he's busy, read the book of Revelation. Yeah, I mean, he's doing stuff and he's he's certainly preparing a place for you and for me. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Okay. so verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. Well, that's true. And 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 it was or I can say she was. So how, how, how was that? Isaiah 53. I mean, Jesus bore the judgment on the cross. He bore all of that. It pleased the father to bruise his own son. 
And redemption came on the basis of that judgment that was decreed from the foundation of the world that he would die for our sins and her converts with righteousness. All of us who are converted Christians are converted on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. And this is why the spirit of God in in, uh, John chapter 16 says when he comes, he will convict the world, sin, judgment, righteousness, because they believe not on me. For us who have believed upon him, he takes our cold, dark heart. He changes it. He transforms it. Where this heart at one time was cold and even antagonistic toward the things of God, he warms it so that now it has a distinct feeling and affection for the word, for the church, for the things of God. That transformation in my life is what we call new birth. And when a man or woman is born again, they love Christian music. They love Christ. They love Christ's word. They love everything connected with that which is holy because that which is holy is righteous. And anybody who tells me they're born again, but they don't like church, they don't like God, they're not interested in Christians, they don't want to hear Christian music, I'll tell you nothing has happened to him or her. Nothing. They may go to church. They may have converted to a religious system. Well, there's been no evident change, you know. You could put my mom up here next to me and you you'd be able to see immediately I am her child. I look just like her. And if you had my 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 biological dad up here before he passed and and you had him walk across the room and then you had me walk across the room, you say he's got his bow legs. He's got his gait. He walks just like him. You'd know immediately. And, And so anyone who says they're born of God should resemble God. Yeah, if they don't act like God, how, why, why, why blame God for, for somebody's bad, bad actions? No, I, I understand that, that God spiritually adopts us, but when he does spiritually adopt us, that's new birth. So our tendencies begin to change. Even a kid who was legally or formally adopted by some man or some woman if he or she spends enough time with those, with that couple and they're his parents, over time he's going to adopt some of their habits and customs. That's what's going to happen. And when you come into the kingdom of God, whatever your past life might have been, once you get your face in the book and begin to read what the scripture says, pretty soon all your inclinations start changing. You start acting like God. This is how we become godly, not just by hanging around Christians but by reading the word and adopting the principles of God. So verse 28, he said, the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together. And they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. God is saying, I'm going to handle all of these people that won't obey my word. He's going to do that. We don't need to do that. Now I'm like you. I get frustrated when, when, uh, Preachers don't preach the truth. And when Christians hypocrite, all that bothers me as much as it bothers you. It grieves me like it grieves you. But here's what I know. Romans 14 makes it very plain. Who are you to judge another man's servant before God? They stand or fall. And God's big enough to handle them. And one thing I do know with God is it is better if we humble ourselves first rather than waiting to be humiliated later. See, 
If God puts his finger on something in your life or in my life, it's just best to say, okay, God, you are right because that conduct is sinful and I shouldn't be saying that. I shouldn't be doing that. So, so Lord, I'm going to humble myself. Please multiply your grace in my life so I can turn and stay in the right path. Otherwise, if, if, if you try to hide it, the Bible said he that hideth his sin is going to be discovered. See? And then when it's discovered, what happens? Shame. Embarrassment, humiliation, and that's not just for preachers. That's for plenty of people. There have been a whole lot of spouses who've been humiliated because they wouldn't obey God when God was dealing with their heart. There have been plenty of parents who have been humiliated when the parents found out or when the kids found out mom and dad were doing this, doing that, shouldn't have been doing that at all. Yeah. Humble ourselves first to prevent the humiliation. Verse 29. They shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired. So a lot of times they use trees for uh, groves of idolatry. You go back into Genesis, you see that sometimes they would plant rows of trees and use those rows of trees for sacred purposes, for worship and things like that. And you shall be confounded for the gardens that you have chosen. Well, there'll be confusion. Uh, some translations say there'll be gardens without water. But in either, in either case, the garden that's planted won't be something that will yield any kind of fruit that they will be able to use. At all. If you've ever seen a garden without water, you know that's not a pretty sight. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not pretty at all. And, and if... Um, if harvest time comes along and you don't get to get out there and get the harvest in, something's going to get it. The rodents, the wind, the buzzards, something's going to get it. It's going to rot, but, but, but that harvest is going to be dealt with. But the Lord is saying here in verse 29, there'll be a lot of shame here for the oaks that they've desired because they wanted those things and then they'll be confounded for the gardens that they have chosen. There'll be confusion that comes to them because of the basis of their choices. They'll make the kind of choices that lead to a mental problem. Can't even, can't even see the difference between what's right and what's wrong. Verse 30, and you shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth. We've all seen fall time. When the leaf fades, it turns colors, falls to the ground and pretty much withers and degenerates or the wind comes and blows it away into your neighbor's lawn, which is what most of you are praying for. Yeah. Now, and now I don't have any front trees at all in our yard in, in Red Cloud, but I got neighbors on every side here, both sides and across the street, and they just got these big trees. And them branches just hang down in my yard. And, and every time fall comes along, then I'm just I'm standing out there sometimes just watching all of these folks property falling on my front grass. And, and I'm wondering how come when they go out there and they rake, they never come in my yard and pick up everything that that, that belongs to them. But but the whole process of our four seasons, which is why I like having four seasons, it shows us the cycles of life. Because when fall comes, things fall to the ground, things start to die. When winter comes, a lot of things do die. 
But when spring comes, then that life begins to burst forth inside that vegetation one more time. And where at the end of those branches where you had everything wasn't moving at all. Now that life is, is pushing. And then before you know it, it just thrusts off all that other stuff and the deadness of everything disappears. And then pretty soon we got new leaves that are coming along. See, all of that's a beautiful picture of what God does in that believer's life. He comes along, looks at what's taking place in us. He sees the harvest. He sees the fruit of the spirit, but he also sees that sometimes we can flourish and if we're not careful, we'll get to enjoying this, this summertime blessing a little bit too much. And so the path of God leads us into a different season. Now, God's not trying to hurt anybody, never trying to hurt anybody, but he is trying to bring us into a place of maturity. And, and maturity requires different seasons. You plant a tree, you put that sapling in the ground. And I've watched when they put them, them little baby trees out there with the, at the other church. And then come wintertime, I'd look out that old house where Tiff and I used to live. And sometimes that Nebraska wind would be blowing 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. And that little sapling looks to me like it's bent over, touching the ground. Just leaning over, touching the ground as that wind is blowing all day long. And then if it ever lets up, that thing comes back up. And then that wind comes back and it's leaning down again. And the whole time it's still growing. And then pretty soon that thing's big enough to be an oak tree or something, you know. But what did that wind and all of that do? It stretched it. It made those roots stronger. Where there was a time I could have walked over there and grabbed it with my hand and snatched it right out of the earth. But later on, when that thing becomes so big and so thick, you can drive a truck into it and it'll destroy the truck before it moved the tree. See? All of that is what God is trying to do for us who are Christians. He wants us to have the kind of a life that will produce fruit that won't fade. That's maturity. And then finally, in verse 31, he says, you'll be strong as tow. Now, tow, T-O-W, we're not talking about a tow truck. They didn't have those in ancient times. We're talking about an old English word that describes fiber. Almost like a rope or string. And he's saying you're going to be unstable. See, the strong is going to change. Going to be unstable. That's what he's going to do for them people that think they're, they're strong and they're not. And the maker of it as a spark. What is a spark? You remember those old sparklers you used to give the little kids on 4th of July? You see all them little things jumping off of there. And, of course, a spark only lasts about a split second. That's what he's saying. The, the, the time that these people are going to continue is going to be short. And they shall both burn together and none shall quench them. Verse 24 speaks about the mighty one of Israel. And the last 11 verses we looked at them in this chapter shows to us how powerful and how mighty God is. And, and I want you to know that if, if you have God in your corner, you don't have anything to worry about. Nothing to worry about. Now, we, we get anxious about a lot of things and we get concerned. Lord, how am I going to pay this bill? Uh, Lord, the doctor said this about me physically. Uh, Father, how am I going to be able to have what my kids want when it's time for them to get a car? And all that kind of stuff. But I, I'm telling you now, you, you serve somebody 
who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, if, if, if you're like Corey Ten Boom, she said one time in, in reference in that verse that God's got a cattle on a thousand hills and she was in prison. She said, well, Lord, it would be nice if you sell one of them and get me out of here. You know, I, I think if if God owns everything that we say that he owns, cattle on a thousand hills, all the taters that are in the hills. See, if he owns all of that, he can take care of you and me. Yeah, he, he's big enough to do that. And by virtue of the fact that we're all in here this evening, I know he's done that. I know he's done that. And the miracles that he will do in the future are going to be the kinds of things that we couldn't even conceive. No, we, we may have had our own ideas about how God's going to work this out, how his plan is going to be performed. And then as you continue to walk with God, then you start looking back and you realize, oh, my goodness, I, I could never have been more wrong. Look at what God has done. Isn't he mighty? Amen. 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 All right. So this is as far as we'll go with this. And uh, we'll look into some more on the next occasion. But how many of you are glad you're on God's side? Woo! Praise God. Praise God. Father, thank you that we can walk with you. And when we consider the wonder of your ways, it just leaves us awestruck, God. But the one thing we do know is as we continue to humble ourselves in your presence, you'll do wonders for us. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. 